Amen. Well, good uh, again to be gathered together this morning with our Bibles in our hands. Amen. And uh, so thankful, as we say each and every week, amen, that uh, when a preacher stands before uh, the flock of God, an elder stands before them, um, one of the main, uh, uh, if you will, parts of his office is to feed the flock of God. And uh, so here this morning, as we are going verse by verse through the book of Acts, I pray this morning as we open his word as we, Howard has just read his word, amen, and as now God has given me the opportunity to preach his word this morning, that the spirit of God will indeed take his word out, amen, and apply it to our hearts and to our minds, amen. Ultimately, in the end, if the pastor stands before you and the Holy Spirit of God is not moving in a glorious direction, applying the word to your heart, well, brethren, it's just like me standing and preaching to the wall. And so uh, this morning, I pray as we continue through our verse-by-verse expository preaching of the book of Acts, we see this flow, this river, if you will, of God, as Howard said, as he prayed, of God building his church, God beginning to put his early church together for us even today, brethren, even down some 2,000 years later, the relevancy of the word of God can never, ever be understated for us. Amen. This should be our focal point. Charles Spurgeon once said, This text should be a great encouragement in proclaiming the gospel. And by the time we get to the end of our text, I pray that if you're a believer this morning, that you will see just what an encouraging portion of scripture this really is to those of us who are believers. He continues, because among the people in our communities, again, where we live, brethren, because amongst the people in our communities, the disinterested, the rebellious, the careless, God has an elect people who must be saved. And what I want us to do again, as Paul always did, he always never forgot. Is that a positive and a negative? He never forgot where he came from, amen, and what God saved him from. And so this morning, as we're living in our community, these people, the elect of God, are mingled in amongst us. And we must never forget that, amen. He continues, when you take the gospel to them, you do so. Because God has ordained you to be the messenger of life to their souls, and they must receive it. For so the decree of predestination runs. They are as much redeemed by the blood as the saints who are before the eternal throne. They are indeed Christ's property, brother. And this is what we must keep in mind in our text as we look towards the end of it. God said, I have many people, much people in this city. They belong to God. They are indeed his saved ones through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet now, they are lovers of selfish pleasures and haters of holiness. But if the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased them, he will indeed have them. And brethren, that is such an encouraging thing for us. God is not unfaithful to forget the price that his son has paid. He will not suffer his substitution be in any case an ineffectual dead thing. So in other words, what that means, brother, and then when the word goes out, the spirit of God regenerates and opens up the heart, that his word will go forth, and it, the, the, the sacrifice of Christ will indeed not be an ineffectual dead thing to that one. And this is, again, what we must keep in mind. Tens of thousands of redeemed ones are not yet regenerated, but regenerated they must be, for this is our comfort when we go to them with the quickening word of God. And so this morning, as we take up our text together, as Howard read in verse number one, Luke, as he was carried along by the Holy Ghost, declares that Paul had departed from Athens and he has now arrived safely in the city of Corinth. And of course, we cannot talk about the work of God without first understanding the city that God has just called him to. Amen. And again, the relevancy of scripture and the power of God as we even see it in our own communities. Let me just say a little bit about the city of Corinth this morning. Corinth, indeed, was a city in Greece that was known as the Sin City of Achaia. Very much like, well, when you say Sin City, you know what comes to mind in our day, right? Las Vegas, very very much like that. This is what they were known for. This is the kind of place that God has called Paul to take the gospel and preach there. It was full of idolatry, its open sinful living, and its stirring in of unholy, if you will, cultic religion. Now, there were several there, but just a couple of them to give you an idea, because some historians have written concerning these two. One first was Venus, the goddess of love. 
was worshipped there, and in her name, they engaged in the vilest of religious rites. Again, this is a place, a cesspool, if you will. In fact, one historian wrote, Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing on Corinth. It's a stunning thing when you understand the place that God has called Paul to preach the gospel. That's why when God says, I have much people in this city, it is such an encouraging thing to you and I. However, the most egregious religious cult that was found there in Corinth was that of the worship of Epaphrodite. Epaphrodite was indeed worshipped in many other regions of Greece. But there is a stunning and a most unbelievable thing, if you will. This unholy worship was unique to Corinth, where the mixing of unbridled carnal immorality and religion was on par with that of Baal in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. Just to remind you, this is again where Paul has been called. This is the culture. This is the place. This is where God has called Paul to preach the glorious gospel. The whole, in fact, Corinth was actually made into a verb in its day. The word, the verb, you know, to be Corinthicized meant to be, to be as unholy and, if you will, immoral, if you will, to the, ex- the extreme. I mean, just a stunning thing historically. The whole city was debased from the slaves to the middle class, even all the way up through the upper class. It touched everybody that was there in that city. It's quite an amazing thing, if you say. So, brethren, again, this is the setting. This is the culture. This is the dark place where God has just called Paul from Athens to bring him into this city of Corinth in which the Lord our God said to Paul, Paul, be not afraid, but speak again, for I have much people in this city. Now, look at verses 1, 2, and 3 there, if you would, with me this morning as we kind of lay the foundation and walk through this text together. Look at verse number one. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Again, we've discussed that. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, uh, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came on to them. Well, Paul, or uh, Luke here, of course, is led by the Spirit of God to begin his account of Paul's work in Corinth by mentioning a familiar Jewish couple to you and I, amen, because we have the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila, who by the providence of God, and we read this text, and it's really, again, as we see God working things out for Paul's good, even here in Corinth, because again, Paul has left Athens, and he's by himself, just like when he got to Athens, he was by himself. He was waiting for who? Silas and Timothy to come, and so God, by his providence, sends Paul to Corinth, and by you look at the text there, amen, by the providence of God, this, if you will, Claudius, this, uh, or not Claudius, but uh, you look here uh, as he's there. Uh, yeah, Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came on to them. So again, we see here God's providence sending Priscilla and Aquila off to Corinth before Paul got there. It's an amazing, stunning thing. They didn't move there by mistake. It was indeed the providential hand of God as he's going to care for Paul in this city. And it is here, brethren, that we get introduced to one of the closest, one of the longest enduring friendships in the Lord Jesus Christ that we find in Holy Scripture. Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. It is from the beginning here all the way to the end of Paul's ministry in 2 Timothy. Priscilla and Aquila are there in the forefront, if you will. I want you to see this again just as we lay this out, to see this close relationship that God had bonded them to them three together there in Corinth. Look at verses 18 and 19 of Acts chapter 18. Paul, after this, tarried uh, there yet a good while, and then took his leave of uh, the brethren and sailed thence to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centuria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus. Now this is important, again, as Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila with him to Ephesus, okay? They're going along with him, and you're going to see their faithfulness in this. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Look down at verses 24, 25, and 26. Again, we see this relationship, keeping in mind that he's just gone to Ephesus with them. Again, it's amazing how God just ordains this stuff to be uh, to come to pass. Look at there at verses 24 of that same 
text, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus, so there they are in Ephesus. This man was instructed, and again, that's one of those glorious words that sometimes we like to veer away from, right? That word instructed literally means to be catechized. So in other words, he's teaching. He's being, he has been catechized in the word of God. And the Bible says they're in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Look at verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him onto them and expounded on him the way of God more perfectly. So, again, there's this Priscilla and Aquila who were there uh, in Ephesus teaching the Bible and straightening some, even a man who's been catechized out in concerning the things of God. He only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. So here's this couple again, this faithful couple in Ephesus. Look at Romans chapter 16. Again, just a couple of scriptures for us here. Romans chapter 16. Again, these faithful, uh, this faithful duel, if you will, that God has brought together. They have here, we find in Romans chapter 16, that... Uh, they're here in a house church. <laughs> and again, this is what they're known for, house churching. This is what they did. They were here now being faithful even in Rome. Look at uh, Romans chapter 16. Look at verse number 1. The Bible, Paul writes, or has his scribe write for him under the inspiration of God, I commend you to Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church that is in Centuria that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a secure, a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in, G in Christ Jesus. Look at this. Look while Paul is reminded again of this faithful couple that God had brought together him together with in Corinth. Look at what it says. For who, who have uh, for my life laid down their own necks, Upon, upon unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Verse 5, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So again, you see this faithful couple that God has saved. He's taken them from, from, uh, from Rome. He's taken them now down to Corinth where Paul then bumps into him there. And this relationship is so beautiful and it begins. Look at again the church now that's in Ephesus as, as Paul records this in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So the church in Rome, this faithful couple is there right in their home. Here again we see the word of God speaking of them uh, as faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look there at verse 19 if you would. Paul, when he's closing his first letter to the church at Corinth, he says this, The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. There it is again. As they're moving around, they're, they're having these church houses, these, these house churches together as they are instructing, and the Lord is using them to teach the word of God to many people. And finally, with some of his last inspired words, this couple again is mentioned by Paul. The last thing that we have written down in Scripture concerning the words of Paul, look at 2 Timothy, if you would. And again, just a couple of scriptures here to show you this wonderful relationship that God had sovereignly brought together through the edict of <laughs> the ruler, Claudius. What an amazing thing when you consider that. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 16. Again, the last words that we see here, some of the last words of Paul. Look at verse 16. For at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that, I may not, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at verse 19. Salute Prisca and Aquila. In the household of, of Onesiphorus. Look at, there it is. There it is again. Prisca, the short form of Priscilla. It again, Paul's last almost recorded words in Scripture. He still is mentioning the faithfulness of this couple that God has brought together. Now, Luke tells us that Paul providentially searched and found Aquila and Priscilla as he was skilled in the same craft as they were. He was a tent maker. This is what the Scripture tells us here. So, much has been made of Paul's occupation. 
many questions have been asked concerning the Apostle Paul and his working outside of the ministry. And I know many people ask those questions. Should a minister, should a pastor, should an elder be working in outside of his ministerial job, if you will, in a worldly trade? Well, this is, again, what's imperative for you and I to understand and see that Paul's tent making was indeed a central part of his ministry. This is the thing you can never miss out on. You must never overlook this, that this tent making, the working that Paul was doing, was indeed an important part of his ministry. It was tied together, brother. And there are many reasons for that, although, as we remember in Scripture, right, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul did indeed say that a minister can be taken care of by the flock if they can do that, amen? If they can do that, then he validated that for sure. But again, keeping in mind, Paul, being led by God himself, was using this as part of his ministry. First of all, we see in Scripture that Paul voluntarily supported himself in his missionary and preaching work so that no one, and again, many faith and health and all these kind of prosperity preachers could take a lesson from this. He worked with his own hands. He supported himself that so no one could accuse him of taking the gospel and profiting from it. Amen. This is one of the things that he was extremely uh, did not want people to have that any kind of view concerning him that he would use the gospel for some kind of unholy gain. Second of all, he worked with his own hands though, so that he wouldn't be a burden to the church. It's, it's like ours, brothers, if I can use our church sort of as an example, amen? So we have three elders here in our church. There's one paid elder and then there's two other elders, amen? I am partially supported by the church, but I have my own business. I've always ministered 25 years of preaching. I've always had an outside job so that I do, would not become a burden to the church, amen? Because let's face it, Bible-believing churches, for the most part, are small. There's not a lot of people that come to these churches, amen? Because as we were talking this morning, Wendy and I, I think of what Dean says all the time. Our preaching and our style of fellowship that we have here is not for everyone. <laughs> People will come and they're just shocked by that. Oh, he's, they're just sticking to Scripture. They're preaching the truth. Amen? We're not the only ones. But this isn't for everyone because most people don't like that. They like to flutter off. They don't want to have the Word of God piercing too deep down into their hearts where we want that, amen? We want the word of God to pierce deep down into one's heart, one's conscience. And I can't do that. Only the spirit of God and the word of God can do that. I can't. I don't know you as well as I should or as well as the spirit of God does. He knows your heart. He knows where you're at. Thirdly, and again, this is very important. Paul was following that which was instilled in him as a young Jewish boy and a young Jewish man. You are aware of the Mishnah. Mishnah Ovat 2, 2 says, and this is what he was doing again, following the Mishnah, following some of the Jewish laws, following that which was instilled in him as a young man and as a young boy. It directed theology students to learn a trade. This was something that they were required to do. In fact, Rabbi Gamal said this, Excellent is the study of the Torah when combined with a worldly occupation. For toil in both of them keeps one's mind from sin. Do you see that there? We've, we've all heard it, right? We've all heard that, you know, the you know, idleness is the devil's what? Is the devil's workshop. Now, that's true. That's not, in, that's not inspired scripture, but that is absolutely true. I am convinced in my heart of heart that too many pastors have too much time on their hands to sit in their office and dream up their own stuff. It's a stunning thing to behold. This is one of the things that the rabbis were concerned of, that a teacher of the Torah, a teacher of the word of God, would have way too much idle time. And so Paul was simply practicing that which his father taught him, that which the rabbis taught him. In fact, you know, how can I say this? Jews are kind of stereotyped, aren't they? 
Yeah, it's okay. You can say that. Yeah, you can say that. Why? Because they're all rich, right? I mean, you think of it that, you know, everybody's a Jew. They're all rich. These kind of things. That's because they held work and hold work in a high esteem. There's high esteem, brethren. That's why they're hard workers because of the Mishnah, because of what their parents have taught them. And listen to what the fathers would say. Love work, the Jewish fathers would say. He who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a robber. And so this is what Paul is doing. Paul could have been supported by the churches. But he chose rather to, again, take up his trade. To be able not to be a a burden to the church, but to be an example. And then again, he was deeply concerned that one would say, like Creflo Dollar is said of, and it's rightly said of him, that he's using this for filthy lucre's sake. Paul was deeply concerned about that, wanted no part of it. He wanted the gospel to be preached, if you will, at no charge. Now look back there at Acts chapter 18. Look what happens to Paul again as we have seen, as we've gone verse by verse through the book of Acts. This happens to him again, and as we have seen in the past and looked at scripture before, that every Bible-believing Christian, amen, when the Spirit of God lives in you, and you see unholy things, this should cause and gender in you, your spirit should be pressed within you. Amen? This is something, again, a pattern of Paul. Look at verses 4 and 5, Acts chapter 18. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So again, we see this pattern of Paul. Remember, we just came out of, you know, he was just in Mars Hill. There was, idol, there was idolatry everywhere on every street corner. Remember, we looked at that, and Paul was pressed in the spirit to preach the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, unto these idolaters. And here, as his habitual practice was, he preached the gospel of Christ in the synagogues, and the places where he as a trained rabbi had an open invitation to do so. Luke also records for us here that Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul in Corinth having come from Macedonia. And this is, again, important. This is important as the church history is going on. See, we got the book of Acts happening that was written, and then we have the things going on in the churches as Paul was moving along, amen? This isn't a static thing. This is, these are things that are recorded historically under the inspiration of God and telling us what was happening in the churches as Paul was going along. Well, they came having from Macedonia. They brought with him good news concerning the faith of the church at Thessalonica and a gift of money from the church in Philippi. This is what he's talking about. This is what happened. Hey, the brothers, Paul or Silas and Timotheus, are coming from Macedonia. What did they bring? Just quickly, I want you to see this again. The blessing that God brought upon Paul after being kicked out of every city just about that he has been preaching in. He goes here to Corinth, to this place of immorality, and God again uses him here gloriously. And then he sends Priscilla and Aquila and then he sends Silas and Timotheus to him with this good news. Turn with me again just so we can see this together. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, Paul is in Corinth and he is you know, writing, wrote in his second letter to the church at Corinth. I want you to see this. This is what they brought to him when they came. Good news concerning the church in Thessalonica. But here, uh, and that's, I'll give you the verse, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 through 7. Paul records that there. Uh, but here we see this gift. That, that, that is brought to him, that is such a great encouragement to him as uh, he's been here in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look there, if you would, at verse number 7. Look what he says here again. Paul addressing the gospel freely, not wanting to be, if you will, associated with any kind of filthy lucre's sake. Look at verse number 7. He says, have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? He says in verse 8, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Look at verse 9. And when I was with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia, the brethren now Silas and Timotheus. That's who's coming to him. And they're bringing him what? What did they bring him? The Bible says supplied. Uh, and in all things I have kept myself from being a burdensome to you, and so will I keep myself. And so again, Paul here again is simply saying in the book of Acts where we were at, this is what's happening. 
Paul or Silas and Timothy has brought me this gift. And again, if you go to 1 Thessalonians, you'll see there that Paul again writes concerning what Paul, what uh, Timothy and Silas brought to him, the good news of the faith of those who are in Thessalonica, which is really, an, again, an encouragement. This is something that Paul, again, the Lord is using to uh, encourage Paul as he goes along. Now, look back there at Acts chapter 18. Look at verse number 6. Again, this is, I think, sometimes it really gets interesting. The Word of God really kind of draws us in, and I want you to, again to see Again, what happens is Paul, in verse 5, has just preached the Lord Jesus to them, to the Jews, that Jesus was the Christ. He's the Messiah. This is what he is saying to them. Look at their reaction. Look at their response. And again, brethren, this is their pattern. This is what they do. Just like Paul had a pattern, this is what unbelieving people will do. Look at verse number 6. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook, the Bible says, his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Well, as I said, right on cue. Exactly on cue as we have seen as we walk through the book of, of Acts here. Amen. Their habitual practice of some of the unbelieving Jews here, they responded by opposing themselves and blaspheming God. Now, this is important, brother, and again, as, as Luke records this, as he's led by the Spirit of God, that word oppose means to arrange in battle array for mortal conflict, to arrange face to face with. This is exactly what they're doing. They are indeed arranging in battle array against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it says they're blaspheming. Who are they blaspheming? Paul was preaching that Jesus was the Christ. In a sense, in a real sense, he's preaching that Jesus is God, amen, which he is, God in the flesh. And so they're blaspheming who? The Lord Jesus Christ. But they're opposing themselves, which is really quite a stunning thing when you consider that. It is, as one pastor said, a picture of the intense spiritual warfare and the flaming missiles being directed at Paul by these emissaries. So in other words, we have this battle. I mean, they are literally, these unbelieving Jews are opposing themselves. Now, it's interesting that this word is used only a few times in the New Testament. And it's interesting here that we have the enemies of God opposing themselves here. But I want you to see that God also, amen, it's one thing to be going that direction. It's another thing when it's coming from God. And I want you to see again, one of the only other times in the New Testament this word is used, where one opposes themselves, one who arrays themselves in battle, if you will. Look at James. Turn with me there. One of the only other times. And this, brethren, as we look together in Scripture, brethren, how many times does the Bible say that pride is a good thing? Can I ask you that question? If it was Wednesday evening and we're at Bible study, many of the brethren here would stand up and say, zero, none, not one time is pride ever spoken of well in the scriptures. Not once, never, not one time. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? But by golly, we got all kinds of pride, don't we? And we've got pride in the rainbow. We got pr Think of this for a minute, brethren, that, that they would take the rainbow color of God, the, his, his symbol of grace, that he's bestowed upon the world and use it for such an evil, unholy thing. But they're out, they're out loud and what? Proud. I mean, all these wicked things that are taking place. It's a stunning thing to behold. Let me show you. If you're proud this morning, you better ask God to humble you. You better ask God that you might have repentance concerning this issue. Again, not once, never is pride ever spoken of well in the scripture. Not one time. In fact, when it is spoken of, it is an abomination to God, and this is what we see here. Look what John or James wrote concerning this. Again, one of the only other times that it's used in the New Testament. I want you to see this. James chapter 4, look at verse number 4. Again, I preached through the book of James some time ago, so this may be familiar to some of you, but let me read this for us. Let us follow along. Verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteress, adulteresses, Know ye, need that, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoso, there, uh, whoso therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? 
Verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God, what? Resisteth the proud. Now, brethren, you understand what that means. It literally means that God is indeed in a battle array against those who are proud. Face to face. This is the idea here that God, this is how much he hates it. He hates it just like these guys hated the gospel. Uh, or even worse, is God being perfect. But he hates pride. That's why when we sing some of the songs, we even have some hymnals that have that word pride in it. And brothers, what do we do? We, we change it, don't we? We can be thankful. We can be grateful. But we should never be filled with pride. Never. God is set in battle array against those who have pride, who are stuck in their pride. This is exactly what James is telling us. It's an amazing thing. He is indeed set face to face with the proud for moral conflict. This is what God is doing. This is what James is telling us. It's an amazing thing. So Paul, interestingly enough, in his response to their response, <laughs> did as Jewish men do and did. Amen. He shook his raiment, the Bible says. An action, if you will, uh, it's an action, if you will, that is performed by Jews against the Gentiles. Here, He's indicating to these unbelieving Jews who rejected the gospel that they were indeed cut off as the people of God. That was one of the things they loved to say. We are God's people. And in a sense, God is still going to use them in the end times. He's still going to be working with them. He's going to be drawing them. In that sense, in the Old Testament, they were the people of God. Paul is shaking his raiment and saying, no, no, you reject the gospel. You are no longer the people of God. It is only through Christ, through the gospel I'm preaching to you, that one becomes a child of God. So Paul here is shaking and doing what Jewish men always did. Paul also employed a typical Jewish phrase, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean, showing that he has been faithful in preaching Christ unto them. In fact, this is a, something that Paul did on a regular basis. Again, this is a Jewish phrase. This is what they would say. Your blood be on your own head. It's just like they would understand if Paul would have quoted Ezekiel. Amen. Ezekiel was a watchman on the wall. He was one that was there preaching and watching over the people of God. He was faithful in preaching to them. Look what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. Again, he uses this terminology. This is why, brethren, I, it, it's been a burr under my saddle all week long since I saw it. This is why, brethren, the preaching of the word of God is a serious matter. It is not to be joked with. It is not to be played with. It is not to be messed around with at all. As one church did last week, the pastor strolled out there, pulling behind him a little, you remember what, uh, what was that, my little pony, remember that thing? That, when I was growing up, that's what it was called. You could sit on it, and you could bounce up and down on it, that kind of a thing, amen? This is what he did. He just It was nothing more than a dog and pony show, brother, and just something so unholy, and yet the whole place just clapped. They thought it was the greatest thing they've ever heard. Jesus was not mentioned. The gospel was never mentioned, and there he's sitting on this horse going like this, and they're all laughing at him. Just an amazing, unholy thing. Trifling with the gospel must never be done, brother. It must not be, and certainly Paul held to that high standard, if you will. Look at what Paul says here in Acts chapter 20. I pray as sisters in the Lord, as brothers in the Lord, as pastors and elders, that all of us can say this, as Paul said it here in Acts chapter 20. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 26. In fact, he's getting ready to leave Ephesus here, and look at verse 26. All the things he's just said, that word wherefore, therefore, it, con it, it conjoins what was said before to what he's about to say. Wherefore, I take you record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Do you see that there again? Why is he pure from the blood of all men? Because he was faithful in doing this. Look at verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. This is something that was very serious, a serious matter. When Paul shook his raiment off, and when Paul said, your blood is on your own heads, we can't even begin to understand what that means, to have the wrath of God sitting there upon the head of men.
because they are rejecting the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul's telling them, shaking his raiment. Remember earlier in in chapter 13, he shook the dust off his feet. Same thing. Same thing that was done here, only in a much bigger gesture. I preach to you, your Messiah, your God-sent Messiah. Brethren, this is the amazing thing, again, that we consider as we're going through this, that God loves the people of Israel. He loved them. And he kept telling them, I'm sending you a Messiah. And even now, when the Messiah was walking, remember we went through the Gospel of Mark, reject, reject, reject. Even here they are continuing to do what men will do. Religious, brethren, if you're around unbiblical religion. Now there's biblical religion. James talks about that. I'm talking about this kind of religion. Religion where you think that you can do something, that you can save yourself, that you can do something to earn credit with God. You cannot. The credit, brethren, if you will, is imputed to your account when you believe on him. It's not your work. It's Christ's work that God imputes to you, his finished work. That's how one is saved. These religious men could not, for the life of them, see this or understand it. They are indeed and were walking in darkness. Paul says, I've been a faithful watchman. I've preached all the counsel of God. Therefore, I am free from the blood of all men. I pray this morning that we, as Christians, brothers and sisters, can say the same. Now look back there at verses 7 and 8. Acts chapter 18. Look at verses 7 and 8 as we bring this portion of Scripture to a close. Paul says, I'm clean. Henceforth, I'm going unto the Gentiles. In verse 7, look what it says. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house was joined hard to the synagogue. Now, you can't make this up. This is really an irony of ironies when you consider what just happened here. Verse 8, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now, again, sometimes you have to chuckle a little bit at what's taking place in verse number 7. Paul left the synagogue and went next door to Justice's house. (laughs) Think of this for a moment. He was a worshiper of God. Again, another irony of ironies, which this place where Paul has left the synagogue and it was hard against the synagogue, which means it was right by the synagogue, is exactly the first church that God put together in the church of Cor- in, the, in Corinth. Think of that for a moment. The first gathering place is right next to the synagogue where God is preaching the gospel, where Paul's preaching the gospel, where these men are preaching the gospel there. It's an, am- it's an amazing thing when you think about it. But brethren, think of this even more galling and detestable to the Jews that were there. Was God plucking Crispus? a chief ruler, amen, of the synagogue and his family, along with many other Corinthians, out of the flames of hell. Brethren, do you understand what God did? He did what he always does. He providentially brings the gospel to them. The Spirit of God opens their ears and their eyes to hear, and he takes that word and he applies it down in there. And think of this, God plucked Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, and not just a ruler, a chief ruler of the synagogue and his family, right out of the pit of hell itself. As he opened up their eyes and ears to hear the, go- the gospel, they believed, Luke records, on the Lord Jesus Christ, which saved them. And then they were baptized, identifying themselves publicly with their Savior. And again, baptism doesn't save you, but it identifies you with the Savior, it identifies you with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And believe me, when a believer did that, it's different than when we do it here, amen, because you are separating yourself. You are saying, I no longer follow that. I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm identifying myself with him. And many times, what would that do? Families were split apart. You were disowned. I mean, go down the list of things that would happen to you, not like Americans, right? Amen. It's a stunning thing when you consider the seriousness of this portion of scripture in fact again turn with me to first corinthians one of the few that paul mentions that he actually baptized was crispus the ruler the chief ruler of the synagogue 
Look here, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul mentions it here. And again, Paul here is not, how should we say, um, trying to discredit baptism. He's addressing this issue of division. <laughs> I'm of Paul, I'm of this, I'm of Christ, I'm of this. So here's what Paul says. Look at what he says in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. There it is. He mentions he's, he's personally baptized this chief ruler of the synagogue. Quite an amazing, stunning thing, brother. He preaches the gospel. Lord opens their heart. He then follows through and baptizes them. And Gaius, you can find him in Romans 16, 23. Again, he's mentioned there. Paul, again, mentions him there. And again, he is not downplaying baptism. He is addressing divisions within the church. And we know that the church of Corinth was loaded with issues. <laughs> I mean, all, you know, we think we have issues in our little fellowship, brethren. <laughs> when, you read the first, when you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there are all manner of issues taking place. Things that have not even happened here. Immoral things within the church that have not happened here, praise the Lord, yet. I pray it never does. But Paul addresses that here. So he says, hey, Crispus, this guy, I baptized him and Gaius. Love that, I don't, I don't know. So let us finish up with our text, Acts chapter 18, by reading verses 9, 10, and 11 together. Look at Acts chapter 18. Let us, again, close how we opened with this glorious statement of God. Look there, if you would, at verse number 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in a night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak. And hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. We see again God who is directing Paul to speak and to preach. God is there guiding and directing him every step of the way. No man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And again, brethren, when we consider the setting. When we consider the place where God had sent Paul to preach the gospel. Where we see, again, the harvest of Crispus and the harvest of those who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in Corinth because of Paul's faithful preaching. I want to close, again, as God, through his glorious means, the preaching of the gospel, brings about his glorious ends. And this is one thing we should always consider, brethren. The saving of his purchased possessions. Keeping in mind how I described Corinth. Keeping in mind what was taking place there in Corinth. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to turn there with me because Paul addresses it. Paul addresses it to us. And I want you to see again, as God sent Paul there and as the church is established, the gospel is being preached. Look what Paul writes under the inspiration of God concerning those people who live there and again brethren this is why we must never forget if you were a whoremonger like I was before you were saved you must never forget this if you were a drunkard like I was before the Lord saved me you must never forget this ever if you grew up in a religious home and you weren't that bad you must never forget this because brethren such were some of you and I want you to see this, how Paul lines this out. Look what he says there in verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Here he goes. Neither fornicators. Now, brethren, as a lost man, I can raise my hand right there on that one. And I'm not bragging. At it. I'm just saying you cannot forget what God has done for you. What you were. Not what you are now, but what you were when he saved you. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, which he's addressing, obviously, nor adulterers, nor infeminate. <laughs> I like to describe that one. There's young children in here, but if I can, there's a softness. It's delicate. That infeminate word literally means delicate to an unmanly degree. There was infeminate people running around in that city because of their idol worship, because of Aphrodite, because of all the things that were taking place there. Nor abusers, those of course, and I can't really say that in a kind of an open way, 
of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous. Brethren, can I stop for just a moment? Why is it that in verse 9, we're not supposed to speak very loudly about the infeminate nor the abusers? Because they're what? Are they infeminate Christians? Are they infeminate abusers of mankind? No. Just like there were not, there's not Christian thieves, there's not Christian adulterers, there's not, none of that stuff. We're supposed to be quiet. No, we're not. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. Brethren, underline this. If you leave today, please remember this. And such were some of you. And God does an amazing thing here in this, in this text. <laughs> he, by triplet, uses the word but. You guys know that that's one of my favorite, shall we say, words in the Bible. But God. And I want you to see, as he described how they were, this is how some of you were. But look what God did. Look at verse 11. But ye, were, ye are washed... What does that mean, brethren? Ye are washed. It means that it is indeed a supernatural bath. It is something that the Holy Ghost does to one who was like this and is like this, a sinner, basically. But ye are washed. That's the first but. Look at the second one. But ye are sanctified. And God carried out his supernatural action by setting them apart from the profane unto the holy when they trusted in Christ. This is what he did. He's describing them at Corinth. This is how immoral they were. This is the kind of thing. But he says, but God is much greater. He's much more glorious. He saves the soul from these things. Look at the third one. But ye are justified in the name, the Bible says, of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, God did this miraculous work in the heart. He, he did the washing. He did, if you will, the sanctifying, the set, setting apart of those who were in Corinth. And believe you me, when they were living in Corinth, people noticed there was a difference. This is how you were. This is how you are now because of the work of God. You've been sanctified, set apart, and you've been justified. God carried out his super by declaring them righteous, again, through the work of Christ. This is a glorious thing, brethren. That God does. It is a work of God. Living amongst all of that. Thereby bestowing unto them and to us. A new right standing before God himself. This is what he's reminding them of. And this is what we as Christians need to be reminded of. You realize brethren the fellowship. As we gather together. You know who it's designed for. Right? Who's it designed for? When we come and gather together. Who is the church, as we gather together, designed for? If you're a believer this morning, it's designed for you. It's designed for the believer. It's designed for the believer to be edified, to be taught, to be lifted up, to ed be edified in all of those things, so that when we leave here, when you go to work tomorrow, brother, when you go to school tomorrow, whatever it is, wherever you go, you are that light in that dark place. Sometimes lost people will come and they'll get saved through the preaching of the word in the fellowship, but that's not the main design of the fellowship whatsoever. And I know to the Western mind that's a shock, but not biblically it's not. Biblically it's designed for the believer to be edified, to be preached to, to be, if you will, all of those things to do the one another's to one another, that when we leave we're set in a good place, that we can preach the gospel a dark place so brethren let me close practically speaking among the people in our communities the disinterested the rebellious the careless they are here right next to you I was that and so were you such was I such was you but God and amongst all of the people there, God has an elect people who must be saved. When you and I take the gospel to them, we do so because God has ordained us to be the messenger of life to their souls. And they must and they will receive it, brethren. For so the decree of predestination runs. Let's pray. Father, this morning, 
we again thank you for your word. We barely even scratched the service of the depth of the text this morning. But there are some things that we certainly have gleaned from them. We have gleaned that we must never and cannot ever compromise on the gospel of Christ. That we must indeed, as Paul was, be faithful in preaching that same gospel message. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That he died according to the scriptures. That he was buried according to the scriptures. That he rose again according to the scriptures. And by trusting in that, believing in the gospel, God does indeed do a supernatural thing where he imputes Christ's righteousness to your account and to mine. Father, uh, Paul was, again, always so faithful in all of that. And Father, one of the other things that I glean from it, and I pray many have, and that is to never forget who I was, where I was, what I was doing when the Lord Jesus Christ saved my wretched soul. I was indeed, as Paul mentioned, a drunkard, a fornicator, and many other things, a thief, an idolater. But you intervened in your graciousness and your kindness. You washed and sanctified and saved. And this really is what this text is about. We don't know who the elect are marching in the streets out here. Blaspheming God, doing the things that I did. We have no idea. Therefore, we must indeed be faithful to the preaching of the gospel of your word that alone can save them. And Father, again, I pray for those who are here who are believers we pray that the word was edifying to them. We pray that, as Spurgeon said, that it was an encouragement to them, realizing that you use us as you use others to preach to us. And Father, we do indeed thank you. We do love you and praise your holy name for what you've done. Something we could never do, save ourselves. Father, we love you now. And as we gather around the Lord's table, we're going to be reminded of that again, of your death, your burial, your resurrection, and proclaim your death till you come again as the church is gathered together this morning. Thank you now. We pray these things all in the name of our Lord and Savior, the name at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, the name at which James, under the inspiration of God, wrote, even the demons shudder, the name of our Savior, the name of our Lord. Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen.